Hi there. Thanks for joining us today on the Eternal Leadership Podcast. This is Sandra Crawford-Williamson with my co-host, John Ramstead. Hey, John. Hey, everybody. Oh, my goodness. Do, do we got a wild ride today, don't we, Sandra? We sure do. We're going to talk today about the F word. The F word. And today the F word is forgiveness. We're going to hear the story of an amazing man, Casey Cease. C-E-A-S-E, like ceasefire. Um, Casey was a sort of a, a little unhappy teenager, 17 years old, um, you know, having some, some depression issues, invites a bunch of friends over to his house, has a party, um, has way too much to drink, and, and gets behind the wheel of his car. And uh, his best friend is kind of chasing him down in the neighborhood, waving his arms, trying to get him to stop and take his keys away. And, um, you know, through a, an accident, he plows over his friend and kills him. His best friend who's trying to stop him in the street from harming himself as a drunk driver, he runs over him and he, and he dies on the spot. So Casey is in the hospital, depressed, on suicide watch, um, obviously legal challenges, you know, his, his challenges with his family. Um, but I will tell you, his story of forgiveness and the grace of God is just amazing. One of the first things that happens as he wakes up in the hospital is his friend's parents are there and they say to him, Casey, you know that we're Christians and we want to let you know that as Christians, we love you and we forgive you and we don't want you to harm yourself and we want you to go on to have a have a wonderful life. And he's just blown away by that, as we all would be. I mean, you wake up and you see these folks in your room and you're thinking, this is this is bad, so bad. And the first thing that happens is he's sort of stunned by this amazing forgiveness that has just poured all over him. And then his story is it just goes on from there and is just absolutely amazing. So, you know, if you're out there and you want to hear an amazing story, definitely listen in. If you're out there and, you know, you have some sort of forgiveness in your life that you need to receive or to give or to uh, to process, please take a listen because it's so, so powerful. John, how did you meet Casey? You know, it was somebody out there, one of our listeners forwarded me a video Sandra and, and and you know we I get so many things that are forwarded to me and and uh, but you know I, I I watch I watch you know everything people send me and I was watching Casey's um, testimony and I got to tell you Sandra as you know because you heard it firsthand during the interview man I was I could not believe what I was hearing what you know what he had gone through it was so compelling and you, you man this is going to be. Um, I think so liberating for some people because, you know, I, I think here's some of the, the key things that we pulled out of this, right? The first one, right, Sandra, was, you know, for, you know, the biggest thing that he had to do was this journey and forgive himself, right? And I know so many people who are struggling with something that's happened in the past. One of my good friends uh, recently, we were just talking about, you know, his, he's a very successful business owner, his journey to faith. But he just feels some things that he'd done in his past. He feels unforgivable, unlovable. And I got to tell you, this is clearly something that, that Casey had to go through and get past himself, didn't he? Absolutely. In fact, I mean, self-forgiveness sometimes is the hardest because we, 
you know, we listen to that little voice in our head that's not the Holy Spirit, and we tell ourselves we're not worthy, we're bad, you've messed up, you can't recover from this, this is the worst, you're just going to live the rest of your life in misery. And, you know, so that's kind of where he started. But, you know, it, it all then takes a different path as he wakes up in the hospital and here, you know, these parents pouring forgiveness all over him. And it just goes from there, you know, forgiveness within his family. And then, you know, his his uh, new girlfriend and wife's father is one of the local police officers that had to, you know, see all of this and, you know, knew every tiny detail. And so think of that father's forgiveness. He had to forgive Casey to allow him to court and, and marry his daughter. And then it just goes on and on. So, you know, forgiveness, man, it's uh, it's so powerful. Yeah, it is. And, and think about this, too. You guys are going to hear this, right? If something has happened to you, um, like what happened to Casey's best friend, right, <laughs> to that family, right, uh, the gift that they gave Casey in forgiving him. And, oh, my goodness, that I can't imagine that conversation as those parents, right? Here's this crazy drunk kid who who killed your son and you're going to him to minister to him and yes. and and give him forgiveness and you know think about uh you know people in your life right now that might be that person that you need to have that conversation with man this has been struggling your heart cuz i think that's a big point i think another one is just you know a this uh one thing i got from listening to Casey though, as he went through this, cause he did, you know, he talks about his process, how he got closure, how he was able to move forward and become honestly this huge, this kingdom warrior. Um, but it was this power of hope and something he said, right? Is that God forgive not, forgives us with the measure that in, in which we forgive others, including yeah, ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So tremendous. I mean, think about that. The, the forgiveness we pour on others is the forgiveness we'll receive. And, you know, when he said that, I was like, wow, that's, that's heavy. So he's in the hospital, he gets his forgiveness, and then his mom gives him a Bible and he starts reading the New Testament. And it goes from there, right? It does. So here's what we want you guys to do is, you know, please, you know, think as you listen to this, um, think of that person that either you need to forgive, might be yourself or somebody else, and how to have that conversation. Man, if that just seems like a wall that's too high to climb over, who might be somebody that you can talk to that can maybe disciple you, mentor you, coach you on maybe how to have that conversation or maybe change your mindset around some of these circumstances because we don't want anybody here listening to be stuck in a victim mentality. God has given us a victor mentality, and we want you to operate from a place of being a victor and an overcomer. And, you know, if you know anybody uh, that should be listening to, to this story with Casey as you listen to this, please forward this to, you know, your friends. Uh, you know, go and subscribe to the podcast, and we'd love to get uh, a rating and review uh uh, Steve, I'll let, I'll let Steve edit that. We'd love to have you just go in and, you know, rate and review the podcast. And so with that, Sandra, you know, I would just say buckle in, right? Absolutely. And in fact, John, you know, if there's somebody you need to forgive, send them this podcast and just in the subject line say, you know, I forgive you. 
and and let them take a listen. That could be the icebreaker that mm, could change that. everything. Could change everything. Yeah, and you know now Casey is lead pastor of this amazing church in Woodlands, Texas, Christ Community Church, and you know he's got founder and uh, CEO of Lucid Books, which is a partnership book publishing company. He helps other people get their books published, um, and he has this amazing ministry, Transform Ministries, which has been uh, around since 2002. So. You know, in the last decade, he has certainly helped many, many people transform their lives. Here we go. All right, on the podcast today, um, Sandra and I, we're excited about having Casey Cson. Casey, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you today. You know, there's a topic that's come up a lot, Sandra, you know, with, with a number of our guests, and we hear it from our audience all the time. And, you know, as we journey through life, there's, there's so many different things that can happen to us, good, bad, and other. And sometimes these things in our past, they, 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 uh, we can choose to have them define us, or we can choose to have that actually refine us so that we can actually accelerate and move forward. And I know that there's some, been significant things in my past that have defined me for a season have actually turned into an anchor and in getting through um, adversity and you know and it's it's just part of this world that we live in in business in our relationships in our health uh, is something uh, and this is why we really wanted to have this conversation with you Casey that Sandra and I see all the time that I, I see really hold people back just in their you know maturing in their faith um, you know, why they're not stepping into their full potential, um, you know, why they're not accomplishing some of the things that they've been, that's on their heart, their passions to go accomplish. Um, wouldn't you agree, Sandra? Yeah. I mean, as we've talked many times, John, um, you know, you can either let something that's happened define who you are in the future, or you can let it help turn you into the person God wants you to be and who he created you to be. And, you know, you and I have both had really traumatic health experiences, you know, where they pretty much wrote us off and said, you know, get your affairs in order and kiss your kids. And, you know, once you go through that, you sort of get a glimpse of what life is supposed to be. Um, but, you know, people that go through things every single day, whether it's things in marriage or work or conflict or family or financial, or they just make a mistake, whether it's, you know, infidelity or pornography or just getting wrong with their adult children. I mean, all these things that we hear our clients are dealing with when you can talk to someone and really, truly bring them the hope of the Lord that, you know, he doesn't give us more than we can handle. You know, there's all these little cliches people say, right? He doesn't give us more than they can handle. If it doesn't kill us, it makes us stronger. Yeah, it doesn't um, feel but, like that in the moment sometimes. Though, does no, it? it doesn't. But let me tell you, you know, we are both walking examples of, you know, God uses everything for good. Every terrible experience, every pain, every surgery, every fractured relationship, he uses it for good. And I mean, Casey, I think you are the ultimate example of that as well with your story. So welcome today. We're so excited to have you. No, I'm honored to be here with you all and, you know, I've personally just been impacted by your stories and, and the testimony of God's grace in your life, just the brief uh, time we've been able to share and, and listen to that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can use our lives as an example for those who do believe and for those who will believe. Well, thank Amen. you for that. Amen. And you know what? You wrote a book called Tragedy to Truth. And, you know, what you went through, 
um, I even feel is just on a different level, I think, emotionally than I went through. So what I'd, what I'd love to do is actually have you uh, just share, you know, your story, your journey with the audience. And just uh, I'm sure Sandra and I will have some questions as we go through this. But I'd like to turn it over for you and just kind of start at the beginning and walk through it. And what everybody, what you're about to hear is just a, a story that's going to just, um, you know, rock you and equip you, in my, my opinion. So I, I didn't grow up in church. I grew up, uh, my dad was actually raised kind of Jewish. So I'm part Jewish. And uh, so you're kind, of, kind Jewish? of Jewish. I'm kind of Jewish. I'm like a quarter. So I don't know if that, you know, and it's not even from my mom's side. So who, who's to say? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm only a quarter good with money. But anyways, I'm allowed to say that because it's funny. Anyway, so <laughs> moving forward. Um, but I didn't go, grow up going to church. I actually uh, struggled with anxiety and depression from a young age and um, just was very shy, very uh, nervous. I would worry obsessively a lot. Um, got into junior high, started liking girls and started coming out of my shell a bit. Um, and, you know, during the time the, the the depression would come and go, you know, I was very much given into people pleasing, just, just so consumed with making sure that people would like me and approve of me. Um, you know, and so that, that was constantly a, a battle for me as I would, um, you know, enter into, you know, those relationships at school or at home or on baseball teams or whatever. It was always trying to make sure people were pleased with me. And it was exhausting. That, Casey, you know, I, I think partly, you know, you can say somewhat it's daddy issues. You know, my dad was a Vietnam vet um, and, uh, you know, grew up in, you know, old school house where, you know, if, it, you know, if your dad was proud of you, you didn't hear from him. Right. It's yeah. like you kind of live to like, you know, if he was upset with you, you know about it. Um, and so there was there was not there, there was correction without affirmation a lot of time um, and, or it's performance based affirmation. And I still have a good relationship with my dad today and everything. So I, I'm not going to fully bite into the, the daddy issue thing. But I think there's this just innate insecurity of pleasure. And I think there's a sinful insecurity of of wanting of worship, um, you know, that we, we make ourselves, you know, we put our hopes in ourselves as an idol and want other people to find pleasure in us as well. And so I think there's a whole smorgasbord of mess uh, wrapped up in that. But, um, you know, and so you know, by the time I got into high school, I'd already had a 10 month long relationship with a girl. And so, you know, it was very much finding my identity in, in, in this, in this young lady and it wasn't fair to her. I mean, she was a 13, 14 year old kid. And, um, but you know, I, I put a, probably looking back now, way more emotional equity into that than I should have at the time at that age, especially. Uh, so I got another long-term relationship when I was 15, started partying in high school, drinking, uh, was, you know, was a binge drinker at times, but you know, never had, drank to the point of making myself sick or anything like that. But, but definitely, you know, not an appropriate behavior, especially as a 16 year old kid or really any age. And, um, you know, I was at a place in my life where I'd, you know, missed several weeks of school because of mononucleosis in 10th grade. I ended up having to go to summer school all summer to catch up. Got a junior year, you know, I was involved in the theater program and, uh, you know, so I enjoyed acting and things like that, which will kind of help my story later to, to have that benchmark there. Um, and then, you know, the summer after my senior or at the summer after my junior year of high school, um, the girlfriend I had been with for a year and a half and I had recently broken up. I was feeling very alone. I was at a, in a depression where I felt I, I felt aware that even though when I was around people, I felt very lonely. And so there wasn't mm -hmm. this the sense of community. It was still a sense of isolation. And I would try to express that and find, you know, find some sense of realness through, you know, physical relationships with girls or 
partying or whatever. And it just was empty. All of it was empty. And so on July 4th, 1995, my parents um, said I could invite a few friends over for a party. And so I invited a few friends and they invited a few friends. So the five or six turned to, I think, roughly around 20 kids. Uh, I was drinking beer, playing volleyball. Um, and uh, I was just really lonely. Uh, I, I remember trying to reach out to a few friends that night, asking if they could talk and they were busy or talking with somebody else. And it was just as a kid that just turned 17 years old, just a very isolating experience. You know, people were at my house. They were, you know, I just felt very used as well. And here's the crazy thing. I was using those people too. I was allowing them to to project value onto me that they wanted to hang out with me and come to my house for a party, but really they wanted a, a safe place to go drink some alcohol, you know? So, um, right. you know, in hindsight, I could look back and see that. And so as the night went on, um, that girlfriend from eighth grade came over and we started talking and she started to tell me about her life and her life was insane at the time, you know, being reckless and, and, um, you know, and so I, I don't blame her, but that was for whatever reason, I got really upset and I said, you know what, forget it. And, um, you know, over the years you try to look back and justify, well, I did it because this overall I was emotional and I was being manipulative and I got really upset. I was angry and I was sad and I went and got my car keys. I had a 1995 Z28 Camaro. Um, I got in my car and began pulling away. As I was pulling away, a friend of mine sat in front of my car to try to stop me. Um, another friend started banging on the window, yelling, Casey, get out of your car, get out of your car. And I remember just yelling back, leave me alone, let me go, and turn the radio up loud. Now, had these uh, people also tried to block you in because they knew that you might be also trying to drive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th they were first banging on the window, and then they took a car and parked it in front of me and one behind me. And so they ended up putting me in, and they thought I couldn't go anywhere, so they left me alone. And so a few minutes passed, and I looked up, and I saw that no one was around, and I realized that there was a light post to my left and a car in front of me, but if I hopped the curb, I could get around that car, and so that's what I did. I turned my car on, hopped the curb, and I left. I went to the exit of my neighborhood, and it was at that point I just broke down, and I remember in that moment just sobbing, and I still don't know why I was so upset, um, but you know, I thought that life couldn't get much worse, and I remember crying out to a God I didn't yet know. Um, asking why, you know, and from there, I was going to go out a back way of my neighborhood, but I decided, you know what, forget this. I just want to go home. I want to tell these people to leave. I, I just, I don't care, but I was still mad and I was still upset. And, you know, I had a 360 horsepower Camaro on a road at 845 or 145 in the morning. Um, and so I started going around this curve. I was going roughly about 80 miles an hour. At least that's where the, roughly where the speedometer um, was showing. And as I went around this curve, all of a sudden I see my friend John in the street with his arms up in the air, apparently trying to stop me. And I, I take the wheel and I try to swerve out of the way. He jumps the same direction. His body rolls up the hood of my car, smashes through my windshield. And he comes through so hard that my, my, my steering wheel, the top part bends back towards me. Airbags come out. I lose control of the car, knock over some trees, um, and land in some trees. And from that point, I was in contact. I wake up. My, there's smoke everywhere, fiberglass in the air from the airbags. Um, my friend is coming through the passenger door screaming, Casey, Casey, are you okay? And I started taking off my seatbelt and started screaming, oh, my gosh, who did I hit? Who did I hit? And he said, Casey, calm down. You didn't hit anybody, man. You just hit some trees. I said, no, I hit somebody. I hit somebody. Go look. And so he pulls me out of the car, lays me in the grass. I see him run and stop. He turns around and goes and runs um, back towards the fence that separated my cul-de-sac from the street, hops that fence. In the next few minutes, I hear people screaming and crying. Um, my dad hops over the fence. They woke him up. He's asleep at home. And, you know, he's an attorney and he's like, don't say a word. And uh, I didn't know what was going on. And I was coming in and out of consciousness, just just 
disoriented. And uh, I remember a fireman was working on me and, and, and I kept asking him, I said, sir, is my friend okay? And he said, he said, uh, he said, I'm not worrying about him right now. I'm worrying about you. And that's all he kept saying. Mm. Um, and so they put me in the ambulance and uh, took me to the hospital. And a couple hours later, I was in the hospital. State trooper walked in and said, uh, son, there's, I need to take your blood. There's been a fatality. Young man's been killed. And it was at that moment I realized that my friend John was dead and it was my fault. Whoa. I mean, that's real right there, huh? What, 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 that's, right that, when that's you more real that, than, that, that, yeah. I mean, that's more real than I think any of us ever want to be real <laughs> in that like moment. Almost surreal, right? Like, you, you yeah. know, you play that back in your mind, like, this can't really be true. It's like one of these bad movies and it's all going to just be okay. And, and I just got to maybe fix things in what what's going through your mind right when you hear you just killed your friend if my friend is dead then i should be dead too mm. it was this weird sense of justice and maybe a dash of cowardice but uh i mean it was absolutely devastating and overwhelming i i, I literally i mean talk about feeling exposed um i, I was deeply exposed and you know, they, uh, they, they took me and they, you know, they had a police officer kind of standing by the security guard at the, at the hospital. At least that's what they told me, you know, as an adult looking back, they had him just making sure I wasn't going to try to get up and run out, uh, which I wasn't. I mean, at that point it was like, there's, there's nothing I can, why would I run from this? I can't do this. I didn't mean to do this, but you know, I, I had, I had to, to own it. And so my parents decided when the doctors were like, well, you know, he's got some soft tissue injuries. He's, you know, you know, I had blood coming out of my ears. He may have a head injury, but the CAT scan didn't show any severe bleeding or anything. And so um, they were going to release me. And my parents were like, they knew my history with depression and my struggle at times with suicidal thoughts. And so they, they took me and put me in a mental hospital. Um, and the first full day I was there, my friend's parents asked to come see me. And I'd only met them one or two times. So this is John's and- parents? John's parents. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, his mom and dad came in. I met his mom once or twice. I didn't recall meeting his dad. Now, did um, you know they were coming or did they show up? No, they told me, I mean, they, my, my, they talked to my parents and they asked if they could come see me. And, hmm. and so they did. And a social worker was in there with me as well. But, you know, I, that's when it still look, thinking back on it, you know, you feel your chest tighten a little bit and it, it was, it was difficult to face his parents, but what happened was pretty remarkable. they, they looked at me and said, Casey, we want you to know that we are Christians and that we forgive you and we don't want you to hurt yourself. But we know that John doesn't want you to hurt yourself either. Um, and that, that was an impactful moment, more so looking back. I mean, in that moment it was just confusing because, you know, I'd gone to church on and off, but, I, you know, I would not say I, I had professed Christ or trusted in Jesus. And so um, that was not uh, that, that was very disorienting at the, at the moment for me. You know, as a father of three boys, you know, having. Uh, you know, walking into that, you know, your room as that father and mother. Um, oh, my goodness. What what a profound witness that is. Yeah, absolutely. So that was really your first exposure to, um, you know, Jesus's flavor of forgiveness, I would expect. Yeah, tangible grace. Yeah. I mean, based on you said you were raised, you know, by strict dad, Vietnam vet. 
performance-based. You probably had not been given a lot of second chances and grace and forgiveness up to that point. So you're probably at what you think is your lowest. You don't want to go on. And then someone comes in and, and just lays that on you. Well, yeah. And, you know, with my dad, I mean, he he was, I mean, to the best that I think he knew how at the time able to try to have a relationship, but it was always very transactional, right. you know, and, and this is the first time that I had nothing to transact with. All I had to bring to the table was my failure, you know, yeah. and, and my sin. I mean, that's, that's all I had. I, I, there's nothing, I mean, I, I could try to do good things, but that would never equate to their son's life being brought back to them. I mean, and that, right. that's, that sense of bankruptcy, um, it's hard to explain. Well, I you said it perfectly. When you grow up, like I did also, in a transactional parenting relationship, and then all of a sudden you're in a place where you, you are truly bankrupt. You cannot redo. There's no makeup. There's no do it over. There's no fix it. So you're literally at the bottom of your of your performance-based bank account. That's it. So, so Casey, you're, you're in this, it's almost like this schism, right? You're, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes, laying in that bed, right? The sense of guilt, shame, depression, failure, uh, loneliness, which has probably now been amplified. And you're contrasting that now with this, you know, grace that was just shown to you by John's parents, you know, um, you know, as you look at just the next, you know, 24, 48 hours as you're processing this, what was going through your mind? I didn't know what to think. I mean, mm. I, I didn't have a grip for that, that, that. And so did that mean I wouldn't face any consequences? Did that mean that, um, they acknowledge that I didn't mean to do it? I mean, th- those were the things that are going through my head. Like what in the world, you know, you know, and they asked me if I, if I had faith or if I was a Christian and, you know, and I, I'd said, yes, you know, partly I was just very defensive of that cause I had gone to church before and, you know, I, I mean, I was really more at that point an agnostic just because I wanted to curb my bets, you know, and, <laughs> you know, and so, um, but I also, it's interesting now that I, I freely like to talk with people about, you know, Jesus, but I was very private about spirituality because I was very confused. Being a Christian, you know, growing up was more about how you behaved than what you believed. Um, and so, you know, that, that, you know, I, I, I was not. But it, at the same time, it was uh, it was disorienting. I also had a pastor that had, um, you know, the church that I was confirmed in as a kid. I hadn't been in probably six years and he was new to that church. But he asked my parents if he could come meet with me. And his name's Marty. And Marty came in and, you know, did, didn't lay out heavy, lay on heavy the gospel or anything else. He just more talked to me on a man to man level saying, you, you've got some important decisions you need to make on how you're going to live your life. You're at a fork in your road. And and. That was a that was a helpful moment of of doing that, and then they had they had somebody else from the church come and bring me communion, um, and all that kind of stuff. And it was a, it was a United Methodist Church that you know I'd gone to on and off as a kid, and um, you know it was it was interesting just to um, experience that that gesture of grace. And so you know they they were kind to at least reach out to my family, and you know um, you know so so I'm I'm eternally grateful for for that, that those gestures that the Lord had orchestrated in that time to let me know that, that he was near, even if I wasn't. <laughs> so it was, it was, I'm it was very curious. Enough. I'm curious, Casey, what was your parents' reaction in that, that first 24 hours? Protection. Um, I think protect me, protect themselves. Uh, yeah. you know, they had, 
my dad had bought that keg. Um, and you know, I mean, so I, I think there's a protective element, you know, he had talked about having some friends from the Vietnam helicopter pilot friends of his come over that night. And, but he also knew that I drank and my friends, some of my friends' parents were fine with them drinking at a safe place or whatever. And so, you know, I think there's, there's a protective element. I think there was a, you know, they want to protect me uh, because they, they knew as a kid, I wasn't, you know, I, I was usually the guy taking care of people who had been drinking or whatever. And they had, you know, uh, yeah, I think it was preservation and protection during that time. And I can't speak directly for them. I knew it was extremely difficult. Um, you know, and, you know, my actions did bring hardship to my family for sure. Did your parents know John? Briefly, not very well. I mean, you know, typical teenage kids who didn't really hang out with parents too much, you know, right. you know they'd seen him at our house before and all that, but they didn't, you know, have a lot of conversations with him. Hey, Casey, I'm curious, you know, you said you came to that fork in the road, right? So you're walking down this path and now the the path converges into two very different directions. Um, how did you make that choice, you know, for other people that might be kind of in the, at that same crossroads? Well, I, I firmly believe the Lord helped me to make a series of choices. Um, and it's it's almost like, if you you know, I have two daughters and they're 11 and 5 and bowling's no fun for them until you put up the bumpers. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I really believe the Lord very kindly helped a, a lot, helped me and helped a lot of people at just the right time speak certain truths into my life and, and to be present. You know, my first the, the, the first thing that was leveraged was my pride that I'm going to try to fix this. That was the first response. I'm, I'm going to change and maybe that would fix it. Um, and I, you know, I started trying to be religious, going to church, being a good person, all that. And I was just no good at being a good person. Um, the harder I try to be a good person, the, the more I, I was exposed to that I can't be a good person on my own. Um, and then from there, but, but it kept falling forward. And so my mom had bought me a Bible. I started reading, it was a student Bible. I started reading the, the new Testament and hanging out with Jesus and realizing like, man, I'm guilty. This dude was innocent. And how in the world are we, you know, I mean, and his death baffled me. Like if it was true that Jesus died to forgive our sins, then it was very confusing for me at the time. Um, but the more I, I continue reading, I mean, just a little bit every day, a chapter a day in the New Testament. And that just began to have a, a spiritual compounding interest in my soul that came to the point of realizing that if God is true, which I then believed that he was, and that Jesus is his son, which I believe that he is, and that Jesus died and rose again, which I believe that he did, um, to forgive sinners like me, then I, I want that. And so what what used to be kind of a silly child story in my mind or just kind of ar arcane became beautiful um, at the age of 17 in the spring of my senior year of high school. And it wasn't immediate. I mean, it was months later that, um, but, but there was definite steps along the way where the Lord um, began doing that. Also, I think just to be honest with you, early on, I think I didn't want to I wanted to shape up so that if they could see that I'm behaving myself and making good choices, they won't send me off to prison. Mm. Um, you know, I think that was part of it, just the fear of justice, which uh, in, in that regard, justice works um, because uh, I did care. And I really genuinely wanted to make a difference in people's lives. Um, there was that 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 very raw and early sense that bad things can be used to help other people. And and I wanted to I wanted to see that happen. And that was just redeemed and amplified when, when Jesus saved me. You know, as you went through this this process, right, from I guess the how you described it, right, the kind of the, the story of Jesus to the 
relationship with the person of the Jesus? Was there anything that kind of, you know, got in your way or, you know, held you back? Uh, oh, yeah. On that Tons. journey? <laughs> Tons of things. I mean, um, you know, uh, lust was a big factor for me uh, growing up. You know, I had early exposure to pornography and, um, you know, and, and an overactive imagination, which is pretty dangerous. And so um, there's a lot of shame and guilt around that and confusion on what feels true is not true. And that was very difficult for me. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the post the postmodern thinking was was very easy when what's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. I mean, when I first became a, a believer, I told some guy that was a Buddhist, like, be the best Buddhist you could be. Like, I, I just I didn't know much. I just knew that Jesus was good enough for me, but he not, may not be for everybody, which is just, you know, as I read the Bible and got to know Jesus more like, wait, wait, no, Jesus says he's the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father but through him. Um, and so, you know, but I mean, early on, I mean, and I think, I think that's what we miss a lot of times. I think we, we believe that in people, maybe your listeners that are being really hard on themselves or pretty young and immature in the faith. And even though you've been a Christian, you made a decision, you, you believe, you know, 20 years ago, you're still not living for him. It, it's, it, it's, you're hoping in the wrong thing. You're hoping in your ability to make yourself right with God when really God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that through him. We might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21. And so God did the work. We get the grace and we lean into that grace. And so that was the big thing for me is trying trying to be better because of Jesus. And I wanted to live my life as a thank you. But early on, I didn't have a grid of what that looked like. It was still very transactional. So, Casey, when your parents come in and tell you they're going to put you in a mental hospital, uh, you know, how, how's that feel? I mean, at that point, it was like everything's out of my control. Uh, you know, and so I go along with what they're going to do. I mean, and I understood why. I mean, you get there, they put you on suicide watch, they take your shoelaces and anything you could possibly cause harm to yourself. You're taking a shower with a big orderly right outside of the bathroom, making sure there's nothing sharp in there. I mean, I wasn't even allowed to keep it. They bring a toothbrush to me to brush my teeth under supervision and they take it all back. I mean, you know, and they'd come in and check on me every so often. I think, I think the first night they might've had someone sleep outside of my door. Um, and so, I mean, it was, it was, you know, but I, I mean, at that point is out of my hands. Like it, talk about just being utterly powerless. You know, I didn't know if I was going to, you know, once I, I didn't know if my parents were going to go to jail. I didn't know if I was going to go to jail. I didn't know what was going to happen. No, Casey, as you look back now. So did you, were you upset with your parents and you, as you think about that? So, you know, I, I felt, I didn't feel frustrated with my parents. I, I knew that they were, I mean, at that point, it's like, I, I, I did trust that they wanted to look out for me and take care of me. They, I think they were looking out for my best interest. I don't recall feeling angry with them about that. I felt ashamed and I felt really bad for the pain and struggles I caused them. But I, I, I didn't feel angry with them. I, I knew they were trying to do the best they could, you know, to, to take care of me. You know, as you went through that whole process, Casey, you know, kind of looking back on it now, what are, what are some of the things now that you noticed as you went through this whole probably multi-year journey? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's a story there that, that people can relate to, even if they haven't been through the same thing, that um, deep sense of failure of, you know, a, a, a consequence happening that you didn't intend to happen is still your responsibility. Um, I, I think that understanding what grace really is, is something that um, 
anchors me in uh, how I interact with people, you know, whether in my pastoral role or publishing or in my home, um, you know, the, the grace of God extended to me through the opportunity to allow part of my um, community service to be speaking to teenagers at the time. As a teenager, really, I was 17 still, and I started speaking to teenagers. And as my passion for Jesus grew, I began speaking to uh, larger groups of people and uh, started a nonprofit. It's called Transform Ministries that uh, by 2004, I was speaking about 120 days a year around the United States and other parts of the world. Um, and not just about that story, but also about um God's grace and teaching from the Bible and other organizations. And so, you know, uh, I don't recommend the route that <laughs> the journey I had, if you can avoid it. But I will say that the, the verse of Romans 8, 28 is true, that God uses all things for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. You know, it, it always struck me, Casey, you know, at, at my accident, you know, laying there crushed and broken. That's the first thing that God said to me in person. Why? What 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 do you think it, is it about that verse which I didn't even know at the time that was Romans eight twenty eight, and I'd really encourage people to go read that whole book chapter eight. Um, what is it about that that God is just constantly trying to reinforce when it really comes to I think uh, you know our understanding of who God is and the nature of God. Yeah, man. I- I think so many people project onto God what they expect him to be. And I often say that that we have a, a bad tendency of creating a God in our image or the image of our earthly father rather than getting to know the God in whose image we were created in. Um, and and so I, I think we, we, uh, we project onto God a lot of junk that um, is not only unfair but unbiblical. And not that God can't handle um, that. Jesus paid for that sin as well. But what I think it does, it robs us from the joy we were meant to have by loving and knowing and appreciating and enjoying God. And and so, you know, I, I tell people all the time that, you, you know, I, I'm not trying to discount how you're feeling, but I want you to know um, who God is and how God is, uh, because it's important for you to know how God feels about you because of Jesus. You know, for, you know, for people right now, you know, and I'm sure, you know, as a, you know, the work you do, right, you have your own company, book publishing as a pastor running Transform Ministries, you know, you come across a lot of people that have something in their past that they, that they have not reconciled in the way that you have. You know, what advice do you have for them, Casey? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the first thing I would say is, you know, if you're living in denial of your past, you're never going to be liberated to live in your, into your future, um, and if you're listening to this and you're not yet convinced that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, then I want to encourage you to, to grab a Bible and start reading in the New Testament at least. Uh, because what you'll find there is a, as a savior who, although had every power of God, did not hold on to that power. But yet he humbled himself and he humbled himself to the extent of dying on a cross, becoming the payment for sin, uh, being dead and buried and by God's power being raised from the dead, defeating sin, death and Satan. So that all who believe in him will be forgiven of their sin, acceptable to God and utilized by God for God's glory and for your joy. And, and I want people to know that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power available to us in Christ to be able to face our past and be able to utilize it for God's glory and to help other people. 
Amen. Oh my goodness. You know, Casey, so let's get real for a second. So you don't have to go to jail, right? Right. Yeah. You have community service, probation, you know, John's parents' forgiveness. You're you're in the mental hospital. You're you're getting right with the Lord. And um, you know, who did you turn to then? Once you've now accepted Jesus and you're reading the Bible, and you know, you're you're sort of fumbling along, if you will, as a new believer. Who did you turn to? Who was there for you to talk to you about the Lord? There are several people along the way. Um, there's a guy named Micah Nicholas that I served with. He asked me to come help out in the youth ministry. And, um, you know, he began helping me, you know, think through the Lord. There's a pastor named Jeff McDowell. Um, and Jeff was was very helpful and kind in answering my questions, helped me struggle through doubts and learning the ins and outs of ministry. Uh, later on, there's a guy named Chuck Land, uh, who is a pastor of Crossbridge Church in Sugarland that really walked with me through some stuff. And then um, there, there's a there's a, a man who's now like a pastor to pastors named Jim Cofield, who's a part of uh, Crosspoint Ministries, him and Rich Plass. And uh, over the last four or five years, my wife and I have sat under Jim's leadership, caring for us. And um, he's really helped me walk through some closure. And so it wasn't like a three-year thing. It was a process over 20 plus years of, of leaning into who God is and his promises. And it wasn't intense the entire 20 years, but there are definite seasons that were tougher than the others. Um, but, but you know, that, that's why I'm such a big proponent of biblical community, having people in your life who uh, love you enough to point you back to Jesus, to bear with you in love, to call out your sin, to encourage you towards God's grace, to encourage you towards reconciliation. Um, and, and, and that's why as a pastor, that's, a, that's such an important aspect of our church family is, is we were never created to do this life alone. We were meant to do it with the Lord and with other followers of Christ. And so, um, you know, that, that's something that's been just really monumental for me over the years, having other believers speak truth into my life along the way. My friend Justin Hyde's one of my best friends. Uh, we helped my wife and I and, and daughter helped plant a church in Brenham, Texas with them for three and a half years. And uh, he helped me learn a lot about God's grace and leadership and direction. And so there's been tons of people over the several years, you know, in these last couple decades that have really invested in me and have compelled me to invest in the lives of others. Yeah, the reason I ask, I mean, every single one of us, we need those, you know, spiritual parents, if you will, spiritual family. And it's, you said it perfectly, it's in seasons, right? It's not just a, okay, quick fix, John, great, accept the Lord, get baptized, woo, go launch. You know, that's that's not how it works. And so I think as believers, especially those Sunday morning you know, put on your Sunday best and go to church and let's all be churchy. Um, sometimes, you know, we want to act like things are great and we're perfect. And, you know, some of the most broken, depressed, angry, lost people are sitting in church on Sunday morning, but they won't be authentic and tell anybody that they're hurting and that they need help. Right. Um, and, and so I know you're, you're really keen on authenticity. So when you, when you meet your wife and you're, and you know, you start dating, you know, what do you, what do you tell her? She was a sophomore and I was a senior in high school. And yeah. so uh, she knew her dad was a cop um, with Houston Police Department, served 35 years. And so she heard about the crash the next day. And what she'll tell you is she we had met one time uh, before that. You know, she came to a theater work day and we were, you know, I was building a stairway and, you know, she had to be trained on the tools. I remember meeting her there and we'd say hi in the hall. And I, mean, I always remember thinking she was cute, you know, short little redhead, five foot tall. And um and so she knew about the crash. And so what was funny is her, her parents wouldn't let her go out with me. They said, well, they thought they would run me off this way. They said, well, now we're not comfortable with you going out. If he wants to come over to the house, he's welcome to. And I was like, man, I don't, 
I don't have anywhere else to be. And I really like this girl. So why not? So I think that was one of my first steps of courage was going to hang out at, at Stephanie's house with Steve and Becky. And Becky is a sweetheart. Her mom and her dad is very kind and gracious. And he was open minded to see like, all right, was this a freak accident or is this kid a crook? And, um, you know, as we got to know each other and they got, they got to know my heart, they, you know, they entrusted me more with their daughter and, you know, but Stephanie knew the, the baggage coming into it. And, you know, a couple of graces, you know, we talked about why, why wouldn't this guy go to jail? Well, a couple of things. One, my blood alcohol level that the, the state took came back below the legal level of intoxication and the state of Texas didn't pass the zero tolerance for minors until 1998, I believe it was. And so I was a couple of years before that. Additionally, my friend's parents said, we don't want him to go to prison. We think he could do better things outside of prison um, or jail. And so, you know, they were proponents for that. I mean, they definitely wanted me to have high accountability. I had a breathalyzer in my car um, the first six months or year to have to go out like to meet up with my probation officer out and about. Like he'd call me that day and say, hey, you need to be here in an hour at the mall to meet me. And I'd go show up and, you know, he would, you know, because they wanted to make sure I wasn't leaving because I'd have to get a permission slip to travel out of the county. Uh, and eventually it was out of the state. Um, and so like on my honeymoon, when I got married in 2001, I was it was my last six months of probation. I still had to get a permission slip to be able to go um because I was going on a cruise uh, outside, you know, outside the United States. And so I had to get a uh, permission slip to go on my honeymoon and I had to carry it with me. So, you know, there, there's definite, you know, consequences. But if you think about it, it's like, OK, I mean, I could have gone to jail if, you know, if my parents couldn't afford a good attorney and everything else. I might have. Uh, and so that's not lost on me. You know, the the uh, but at the same time, I also believe the Lord was being merciful because I thought, you know, I believe he had something that he wanted me to do for his, his purposes. And so, you know, I, I try not to overthink that, but I do try to be honest and real about that as well. So Stephanie and her parents are right there along for the ride, basically. Oh man, and buckle up. They are. Yeah. Yeah. So how crazy that he was a police officer. And so he knew the ins and outs and the whole story and probably read the police report and everything else. Um, that, I mean, that's, that's real there. You can't, you can't be fake in that situation. So isn't that interesting how God gave you the one relationship where you couldn't fake it and pretend because they already knew everything. Yeah. It wasn't a private matter. I mean, everybody yeah. knew yeah. the next day in the newspaper and, you know, yeah. and the rumors amplify it and, you know, but he was, he was gracious enough to give me a shot, you know, and, you know, we've been married now 17 years and been together over 22 and, uh, but yeah, she's been around for the whole ride, ups and downs all along the way. So how long were you in the mental hospital? I was just there five days. Insurance, <laughs> you know, the insurance <laughs> company, I think was like, well, if he's not suicidal. And so I would go to outpatient, uh, I'd go to physical therapy in the morning, go to psychological therapy almost on a daily basis. Um, and so, you know, that was the mental hospital was a ride. I was in the teenager unit and I was 17, you know, so I was the, one of the older ones there. And I remember one night um, a, a young lady screaming just wildly they were bringing her in um and i remember but but even right then i wanted to try to help people and so even in that the, the group sessions we were in i wanted to try to be an encouragement and help but i remember my dad saying you can't talk about anything because you know you don't want them to use it in court because he didn't know what was coming down the pipe and and so basically i was sitting there and <laughs> had a you know the the social worker was so mad she's like how is he supposed to get any better if he can't talk about it um and so i remember her sitting in my room saying look off the record you know, what are you thinking and feeling? And so I was honest with her. I was just like, I'm really scared. I'm really sad. I feel uh, utterly ashamed. And, you know, we talked a bit and didn't go into too many details still. I was, I was being careful, but, you know, so for a long time, I couldn't really talk about details until there was a civil suit after that. And, um, I couldn't, so, I mean, until 1998, when it finally settled, um, I couldn't, I couldn't really talk details with anybody. 
uh, because it could be admissible. So even with like my psychologist, I could talk around the issues. And so that was weird and, and difficult for sure. Yeah, you know, that that must that must have made it really hard. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, but, you know, one of the things you talked about that I'd really like to kind of highlight because I think it's so important and I think it's been especially hard for, I don't know whether it's just me or just guys in general, but right, you know, kind of being authentic and vulnerable to other men, uh, you know, because as I was recovering from my accident and really trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to do in the second half of my life? I've been given this incredible second chance at life. I get to rewrite the entire script. And uh, what I did uh, was read the Bible every day, and I came across a verse in James uh, 5.16 that really struck me. Um, it was, therefore, confess your sins to each other, and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And I and I I gotta tell you, I had to stop because this felt like, you know, this is kind of like this if then, like a dependent event. You know, there's a few of those that God talks about in the Bible, and you know, God, you go to God for forgiveness, which he, you know, with the right heart, but that true healing comes from sharing what's going on in community. And uh, one of the coaches I had at the time and something I do now with my clients, he had me go all the way back as early as I could remember and graph things, the highs and lows, kind of on a spiritual scale of all these different things that happened in my life. And he had me go back and say, any of these things that are lower, really high points, are you looking at any of these things with any kind of pain or emotion? Or are you looking at these points in the past as a place of, you know, learning and equipping for what you're doing now? And there was definitely some points that were, um, you know, not healed. And, you know, talking about some of these, which were embarrassing, which were very personal to somebody else, um, and just putting it out there and hearing my words and having somebody, you know, be there um, for me to have those conversations massively accelerated, I think, my maturity, my growth, and and my ability to do what I'm doing today. And I'd love your thoughts on, um, you know, how, you know, some of these conversations, these things that we want to share um, are not comfortable sometimes for us, you know, to just trust somebody enough to just put it out there and you know what are your thoughts on that well i think it, it becomes with a foundational understanding of the fact that we can trust god if you think about one of the narratives the main narratives in the bible from genesis to revelation is god constantly telling his creation trust me trust me right and so you know you see in john chapter 2 where jesus would not entrust himself to them the crowd because he knew what was inside of a man and and so i think when we look at this vulnerability aspect of being able to share truth and be able to share what what we're struggling with. Um, You know, part of the thing we have to begin with is, will I trust God with this? And if we trust God with it, then God has created us and redeemed us to have community with each other. And if he's created us and redeemed us to have community with each other, and he's using all things for good, then we've got to be able to trust a few people to share um, our struggles with and to share our worries with. And it's very scary. I mean, I, I know um, when, when I don't have experience in a certain area and I, I take a leap of faith or I try something, you know, not only is there a fear of failure, but there's also, a, you know, just the fear of the unknown. What, what's going to happen? Will they still love me if they know this about me? Right. Right. And so I, I think there's there's a lot of dynamics that, that are at play when dealing with this as well. So, you know, I guess, you know, everybody listening, I would encourage you to go find one or two people that you can truly be in a relationship with, you know, where you can, you know, um, where, you know, somebody who loves you enough 
you know, to maybe share with you some things to maybe, you know, if you're getting on track to, to move you back on track. Uh, we call those bumper buddies. And also somebody that you can trust enough to tell them, you know, what's gone on in the past or maybe even when your heart is wandering and things that are happening in, in your life right now that are kind of pulling you off, right? I, I think of the Lord as true north, right? Casey, I've been a pilot my whole life, right? So everything's yeah. about navigation. And, you know, if you're flying a long distance and life is a long distance and you're just off a couple degrees, you can end up thousands of miles from where you want to be. And it just happens slowly and incrementally with these little decisions that we make that just lead us off track. And all of a sudden, we're so far out in the wilderness. Uh, you know, at times I felt like, man, I don't know how to get back because the, this is such a huge gap. But it was, you know, men and women in my life that, and my wife, who's amazing, you know, where where you where you bring yourself back onto that that true north. Absolutely, and, and I mean that's that that's the whole beauty of the body of Christ when she's she's obeying <laughs> is is there's that that redemptive element that that all people are always pointing each other back to the redeemer, right? It's not just about, you know, behavior or sin management. It's about realignment of faith and belief and trust. You know, as, as we wrap up, so how, how do people get in touch with you, Casey? I know you, you, there's a lot going on in, in, in your world and what you're doing. Yeah. So my personal website is kccs.com. And um, I'm also the owner and CEO of a book publishing company. We're a partnership book publishing company called Lucid Books, L-U-C-I-D, bookspublishing.com, lucidbookspublishing.com. And, um, you know, I love helping people capture and tell their story. I love helping people expand their ministry. I love helping business owners think strategically on how they can utilize a book to build their business. We have uh, a realtor that has used, uh, published a book with us. Uh, he's an expert in Texas farm and uh, ranch land um, in Central Texas, and he attributes over $20 million of real estate business uh, to the utilization of his book. And so we love helping people just go and take the next step. We love helping uh, writers uh, create impactful books that people love to read and share with other people. And so glad to connect there. And you can listen to some of my sermons at C3.Church, which is the church I pastor just north of Houston. And, and C wow. says C-E-A-S-E, right? So K-C-E. That's correct. Like ceasefire. Yeah, C-A-S-E-Y, C-E-A-S-E.com. Just That's so correct. people know where to go. And that'll be in the show notes, too. And go ahead, Sandra. Well, no, I just had to ask. I mean, as a parent, um, one of the things I struggle with and I talk to a lot of people and they they struggle with the same thing is, okay, we don't want to be authentic with our children and tell them, hey, these are the mistakes I made, you know, sneaking out of the house, teen drinking, you know, led to this downfall, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just talking about me. I'm not even talking about your story, right? So... <laughs> How how do we say those things to our children in a way that is authentic and helps them understand who we are, but doesn't reduce how they look up to us? I think, sure. you so know, as I, I, I talk to people. The, yeah, that's the core of transactional versus relational existence with somebody. Right. Right. Um, God created us for relationship with him. Sin uh, entered us into a transactional relationship with sacrifice and obedience. Jesus Christ became that sacrifice under obedience so that we can relate with God. And so parents, I think, miss the boat uh, because if you're a transactional parent, when you tell your kids that you've messed up, they will then transact that against you to then cover in payment their misbehavior, if you will. Uh, 
If you're a relational parent, you can say, hey, I want you to learn from my life so you don't have to go through the pain and struggles and suffering and learn from my mistakes so you can have a better life than I do. And if there's trust built, then you can have that conversation and really um, build trust. And the beautiful thing is even if you don't yet have trust, there's nothing more than I, I really believe this, that a child really wants than to be loved and accepted by their parents and be able to trust their parents. And so one of the ways we do that is by going and saying, hey, I realize I've established a home out of the, the hurriedness of life or because I don't know any better that is more transactional than relational. And so I want to apologize for that. And I really would love to know what you're thinking and feeling. And and so we, we then are able to um, to, to move from uh, condemnation to curiosity as we engage with our kids and or with our spouses, you know? And so I think those are some of the steps you take in, in helping them learn from your mistakes. Because I think if we li- live under the blanket of shame, then we're not able really to cast a vision of what a better life could be in Christ. Wow. Um, what a great <laughs> question, Sandra. And, and Casey, thank you for that answer. I think that was, that was awesome. You know, that difference between transactional and relational and it's just about kind of shifting the perspective of how you share uh, with your kids and the heart from which you share to build trust and relationship. Uh, man, that, that was – thank you for that. Yeah, I mean if you're expecting your, kid, your righteousness to lead your children to righteousness, then you're preaching a false gospel in your home. Hmm. And so we have to point to the righteousness of Christ – that we trust in to cover our sin because then you're no longer the standard of good. You're, you're a sinner alongside your children in need of grace. Right. And so, you know, one of the greatest tips I've gotten from a pastor friend of mine is as your kids enter into adulthood, children to adults, that you become not only their parent, their authority, but you also become their brother and sister in Christ. Um, and, and walk alongside them as well. And if you come alongside looking for their good, um, utilizing the influence God has given you in their life, just from history and trust, um, there, there's, a, there's a lot of help you could bring there. And I know we're getting off on a topic that may be another episode for us to chat through, but uh, um, it's just very important as we think through Jesus died and rose again, not to just transact. He transacted so we could relate. Well, I love that. I mean, I'm going to repeat that because I really want people to get that. If we're parenting through our own self-righteousness and trying to be something we're not, instead of through God's perfectness, then we we aren't doing a very good job of parenting our children and leading them to Christ. You're calling them um, to too little. That's what I would tell you. Yeah. You're inviting your children to too little. That is awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, because we're we're just a big hot mess, right? I mean, I Amen. tell people that all the time. I am just a big hot mess, but for the grace of God, I would be curled up with a gallon of bluebell ice cream, you know, just crying all day. So yeah. it, it's uh, that is a beautiful, beautiful response. And I mean, you've only made me cry three times, so you know, I, I think we better stop now. But <laughs> I mean, Casey, just what an amazing story, you know. And so I just have to ask. Do you have a relationship with John's parents today? We don't currently. Um, you know, we reached out a few times. I, I think, you know, uh, I'd love to connect with them. But I, I once had a, a friend say to me, he said, are you continually reaching out for you or, or, or to help them? And I was doing it for myself. And yeah. so, you know, and, and, you know, when you get all these attorneys involved for the civil trial portion, all that kind of stuff, then, you know, it's out of their hands, out of my hands, essentially. And um, but, uh, you know, they you know, um, if they ever wanted to connect and it would be life giving to them, I'd be glad to. Well, how amazing, though. I mean, I, I want to just end it by saying, I, I mean, the the forgiveness they gave you and by speaking up so you weren't sent to prison. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, they've done so much good 
in their son's death. Absolutely. So, you know, if there are parents out there that are hurting and angry because, you know, something's happened to your children or your spouse or your loved one, um, you know, just that F word, you know, forgiveness can set you free. And, you know, it's if we hang on to, to that anger and hate, it just, it, gosh, it just stews and kills us from the inside out. So, you know, I just think John's parents are a really great example of how forgiveness can set God's work free. And they did that through your world. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, John, I think uh, we should have Casey back on again and we talk about parenting. What do you think? Yeah, Casey, you want to come back on and talk about parenting? Anytime. I'd love to. <laughs> I think we've got a little, I think there's a lot there that he's not saying. So we're going we're gonna to have to do that. Thank you so much, Casey. And thanks for... Um, for telling your story and being so authentic and answering the tough questions. It really means a lot to us. Oh, it's my joy. Thanks for having me on. Blessings to you both and to your listeners. 